All right, this is an oral history interview with Bob Dove for the Robert J. Dole Institute of Politics at the University of Kansas. We're in Bob's home in the city of Falls Church, Virginia, and today is Thursday, March 27, 2008, and I'm Brian Williams. Bob, I want to ask you to start by just giving me a little bit of your own personal background and the steps that led you to be to the Senate. Um, it was uh, an incredibly lucky choice on my part. Um, I attended uh, Duke University and uh, worked under a major professor there uh, who the parliamentarian of the Senate in 1966 had worked under in the 1930s. And he was looking for someone to bring into the parliamentarian's office at the bottom position called second assistant parliamentarian. Uh, he wrote to this professor. Uh, at that point, uh, I was actually teaching uh, at Iowa State University in Ames, Iowa. And I got this letter from uh, my professor. Would I be interested in going to Washington, D.C. and working for the U.S. Senate as second assistant parliamentary? A job I knew nothing about. Uh, I had been trained in... Uh, constitutional law and public administration. I had no particular uh, training in Senate procedure or parliamentary procedure, uh, but uh, I certainly didn't hesitate to tell my professor, yes, I would love to do that. Uh, I was interviewed by the parliamentarian. His name was Floyd Riddick, um, and based on that interview, um, I was selected. So I arrived in Washington in July of 1966, uh, went into the parliamentarian's office, uh, frankly assumed that having done so, um, I would never leave the parliamentarian's office. That was the tradition in the mid-60s. You entered the office and you stayed. Um, that didn't happen to me. Uh, and uh, partly thanks to uh, Senator Bob Dole, um, I actually ended up being parliamentarian of the Senate twice. Uh, once uh, when uh, Senator Baker was leader, and then for the first two years of Senator Dole's majority leadership, and then again when Senator Dole became majority leader again. And at his behest, uh, I returned to the office. And I stayed there until uh, the spring of 2001. So I spent 35 years uh, working for the Senate, either in the parliamentarian's office or uh, for Senator Bob Dole. Did uh, you regret, after all your training, leaving the uh, academic profession a bit? I mean, was that a difficult decision to make? Um, no, for this reason. I, I loved the teaching. And in fact, uh, since I left the Senate in 2001, I've returned to teaching and now teach at three uh, universities here. I did not like the faculty meetings. Uh, I did not like the other parts of academia that uh, are necessarily a part of it. I loved the teaching. Uh, and I'm glad I got back to that. Right. 
Uh, stepping back uh, before Duke, uh, where did you grow up and what about okay. when you graduated? I'm a native of Ohio. Uh, I grew up uh, outside of Columbus. Uh, I did my undergraduate work at the Ohio State University uh, and did not leave Ohio until I went off to graduate school uh, at Duke University. Um, so, prior to your working with or coming to the to the Senate, were you much aware of Bob Dole? Not at all. Um, in I, mean, I was only uh, in academia uh, three years before I came to the Senate. Uh, two years uh, at the Citadel Military College of South Carolina, and one year at Iowa State. Uh, I know that Senator Dole was a member of Congress then, uh, but I had not focused on his career at all. In fact, I didn't really focus on his career until he was elected to the Senate, at which point, of course, I was working on the floor of the Senate and began to see him on a regular basis. In your family background, uh, were you highly partisan, or how did that... Um, Wait, hang on just a second. Something happened here. Okay. Um, I was asking about partisanship in yes. the family. Uh, I mean, I, I was in a Republican family. Uh, my uh, parents uh, supported Senator Robert Taft. Uh, who was, uh, in, in their mind, a, a kind of a demigod, uh, very popular in Ohio. Um, I adopted their politics and actually worked under a gentleman by the name of Ray Bliss, who was the uh, chairman of the uh, state Republican Party uh, when I was in college at Ohio State. Um, I um, was um, a... a a chairman of an Iowa caucus in 1965, but this is long before the Iowa caucuses meant anything and anyone had ever heard of them. It's, it's always been a pleasure uh, of mine to remember that uh, there was a time before, and it's before Jimmy Carter, Jimmy Carter changed the whole Iowa caucus experience, uh, but Iowa was holding caucuses long before then, and they were very low-key, uh, and uh, on, the, on the campus uh, at Iowa State, uh, I held a caucus, and we were lucky to have eight people uh, at that caucus. Of course, that has all changed, but that was my experience with partisanship. I will say that in the parliamentarian's office, I tried to be studiously nonpartisan, which I thought was expected, uh, and I think that was appropriate. But up to that point, uh, I had considered myself a Republican. Um, I think, rather than follow my original scheme here, I think before we can talk about your working for Dole, it's probably important to talk a little bit about that period prior to you working with Dole when you were appointed the parliamentarian uh, by Howard Baker. Um, but let's back up even a little sure. further from that. And when you first started working in the parliamentarian's office, explain your role. Well, um, the parliamentarian's office is an unusual place in that uh, no real outside training is much help. Uh, 
Um, what the parliamentarian in the Senate does is uh, impart to uh, senators and staff their knowledge of what the Senate rules are, and much more important than that, the precedents that have been set since the, the rules were uh, codified in 1884. Uh, there would be no reason, I think, for anyone to study that uh, without really good reason. And, of course, the best reason is you're in the office. And so uh, it was totally on-the-job training. And having gone into the office, the expectation was that you would spend several years training before you were of any value at all to the office, um, both watching the Senate in action and, more to the point, reading uh, some of the 11,000 precedents of the Senate that uh, interpreted the Senate rules, uh, the only copies of which are in the office of the Senate Parliamentarian. And so uh, for three years, that is what I did. Watched the Senate, read those precedents, and tried to get up to speed so that I could do what the two people above me, Floyd Riddick, who was the parliamentarian, and a gentleman by the name of Murray Zwieben, who was the assistant, uh, were doing because they had also done this. And uh, it is a, uh, it's a, uh, an office which operates uh, much like a monarchy. Uh, if you live long enough, you get to be parliamentarian. And it's a, it's a straight line ascension. It's not a, a pyramid where people are competing against each other. Uh, you just wait your turn. And if you have studied and if you have produced, uh, then you get to be parliamentarian. And I'm curious, where, where was your position to watch the Senate? Where did you observe? On the Senate floor. Now, this is long before the Senate was on television. So uh, until 1986, if you were going to watch the Senate, you had to sit on the floor. Uh, and for those first three years, I would be sitting on the back benches where staff sat. Uh, after three years, I began to sit in the parliamentarian's chair, uh, which is a very good vantage point to watch the Senate from. And when you were doing that, you were actually operating as yes, the parliamentarian? which was to point. advise the chair uh, on everything they say and then to advise senators and staff who would come up to the desk and ask questions. And you mentioned these 11,000 pages, I guess it was, or 11,000 uh, well, precedents. There are right. more, more pages than precedents. <laughs> Many of the precedents are, are multi-page uh, writings, yes. Um, and are these a matter of public record, or is it a closed book in the parliamentarian's office? Okay. Um, there was an attempt when Senator Baker was leader to make them a matter of public record. Uh, for whatever reason, that ended up failing. Uh, and as of now, to my knowledge, there is no public record of the precedents. Now, there is a book, it is called Senate Procedure, uh, which is a small, like, one or two sentence summary of each of these precedents. But the full precedents are not published or available. 
I'm, I'm curious and ignorant about the distinction between a rule and the precedents that follow that rule. So just, just make that well, clear. Well, let me tell you the importance is not the rule, but the precedent. Uh, we have many instances in which the way the Senate has interpreted its rules reads as if the rule was being changed. And the key is the Senate follows the precedent that interprets the rule. And uh, that's the job of the parliamentarian, to try to explain uh, to people who are a little skeptical, well, the rule says this, and we have to say, yes, but this is how the Senate has interpreted this rule. And it may be an illogical way, but it is the Senate's way until it's changed by the Senate. That's the advice we will continue to give. And the, the operative precedent is the most recent one. Would Absolutely, be? yes. Can you, uh, would it be fair to ask you to just give an example of, of a rule and then a little bit of the flow of precedents afterwards, or is that... Uh, yes, because I, I've seen them set, uh, and uh, the rules um, have not changed in their wording, but their interpretation has, has definitely changed. Um, when a Senator Byrd was majority leader uh, in the late 1970s, uh, he, was, he was quite annoyed uh, at some of the things that uh, he had, to, uh, the hoops that he had to go through uh, to accomplish some things. And one of the things that really annoyed him was that uh, the Senate does two kinds of business, legislative business, bills, resolutions, and so forth, and executive business, treaties and nominations. And uh, under the Senate rules, uh, when you go in from legislative session to executive session, you are automatically on the first item of the executive calendar. And that motion is not debatable, and so you can easily get to the first item. Well, Senator Byrd didn't like that. He wanted to go into executive session to some other item on the executive calendar. Well, under the rules, if you go into executive session and you're on that first item, a motion to proceed to another one is debatable. And he would have to get cloture, and that would slow him down. Well, he set the precedent that it was perfectly in order for him to move, to go to executive session, to go to any item. There was a challenge to that. Uh, the chair ruled actually against him. He appealed that ruling. The Senate voted with him. And ever since then, any leader can go to an item on the executive calendar, thus saving himself uh, a considerable amount of time in terms of delay. Uh, so it doesn't matter that the rule doesn't read any different than it did uh, in the, uh, the period before Byrd set the precedent. That precedent controls and has continued to control. Are any of the rules from 1884, you said, uh, intact? Okay, they're all intact, but they were written at a time when the Senate did not have a position that anyone referred to as majority leader or minority leader. 
And so there are many precedents that involve those two leaders that uh, are not part of the rules. Uh, a key one is recognition. The rules say that the presiding officer shall recognize the first senator to address them. The precedent is if one of the leaders is seeking recognition, it doesn't matter if they're first. They get it. And again, the advice from the parliamentarian to the chair, if one of those leaders is seeking recognition, you recognize them. You don't recognize anyone else. How spontaneously are you expected as parliamentarian to come up with the right uh, information when the presiding officer is asking for it or you see the need for that it? That is, in a sense, uh, the great tension of the job. You are expected to know what the presiding officer is supposed to say instantaneously. Uh, and you're not supposed to have any uh, hesitation or delay. Um, I, I mentioned in, uh, at the beginning that one of the tense times that I can remember sitting in the parliamentarian's chair was during the impeachment trial of uh, William Jefferson Clinton. Uh, and it's because the presiding officer was the chief justice. And, uh, you know, I had to have that same role and be able to give the, give the chief justice immediate answers to problems that, you know, we did not deal with on a regular basis. Uh, and that, that was kind of tense. I can well imagine. So after your three years of incubation yes. um, and absorption, um, then where did you move? Or what okay, did you then I spent another five years in this post called Second Assistant Parliamentarian. Uh, in 1974, the parliamentarian who had hired me, Floyd Riddick, retired. Uh, he was 65, and uh, he had uh, started working for the Senate in 1947, and so uh, he was ready to move on. Uh, the person above me, who was the assistant parliamentarian, uh, was advanced to the post of parliamentarian, and I was advanced to the post of uh, assistant parliamentarian. Was there anything about Reddick's leaving in 74 uh, that related to the impeachment, possible impeachment of Nixon and the turbulent times, or not? Uh, no. Uh, I, I, will, I will tell you that in 1974, uh, we thought in the summer that there was definitely going to be an impeachment trial of Richard Nixon. And at that point, we had very little to go on about how that trial uh, should be handled. Uh, I was the low person in the office, and I was given the job of spending that summer coming up with a document that would explain how we would handle an impeachment trial. That document was finished and published about four days before President Nixon resigned. And I remember at the time thinking, well, I have just wasted a perfectly good summer on a document that nobody is going to use. I was very delighted that that document existed when we started the impeachment trial of President Clinton, because I could simply pull it off the shelf and say, this is how we do it. 
did anyone in the White House read uh, your, your document in 74, and uh, did it have any role to play in convincing the president to resign? I don't think so at all, no. I think the role uh, was entirely one of uh, two senators, uh, Barry Goldwater and Hugh Scott, going to the president and saying, if you force this to a trial, you will be convicted. That was the consensus. He did not have the one-third plus one necessary to avoid conviction. Right, right. So what was the breakdown then of uh, your role via the, the parliamentarian uh, when you took the secondary position? Okay, uh, as, as I say, it's a monarchy. Uh, and I, I can remember, uh, in a sense, feeling... Uh, over the years when people would tell me uh, this is what the parliamentarian views uh, are and uh, this is what the assistants are, I'm second assistant, and I'm thinking it's totally irrelevant what the assistants' view are unless there's been a coup. It's the parliamentarian's view that counts. And that's what I tried to be uh, when Murray Zwiebeln was parliamentarian, a loyal assistant. And so that's uh, what I did. Were there times uh, when a situation evolved where you get on the phone to Maurice Wieben and, and say, how do, we, how do we do this, or were you pretty much on, on your own? Okay. Um, there was no phone at the desk. So if I was in the chair and uh, I had a problem that I really thought needed his attention, uh, I would get a page to go down to the office, but that was all I could do. Uh, basically, I would handle it as, as best I could. So then, <clears throat> um, you were then elevated to parliamentarian, and what when were the circumstances of that? Yeah. Uh, well, the the circumstances of that, frankly, were not particularly pleasant. Um, as I said, I thought when I went into the office that uh, I had made a commitment, and that the Senate had made a commitment to me, in a sense. Uh, that if I performed well, uh, that I would be there permanently. Um, it was in 1980 that it became clear that that was not really the commitment the Senate had made. Um, in 1980, the Republicans took the Senate. Uh, Murray Zwiebeln was still a relatively young man. I think he was 51 or 52. Uh, he was informed that uh, he was not going to be the parliamentarian when the Republicans took the Senate. Um, I was informed that Senator Baker was planning to move me up. Uh, I was not happy about this. I, I didn't like that precedent. Uh, it's the first time... Uh, that a parliamentarian had been removed uh, when a party uh, change occurred in the Senate. Um, I had uh, come to the, the office in 1966. Uh, two years earlier, a gentleman who had been the parliamentarian had retired at the age of 86. Uh, he had uh, survived four party changes. Uh, there had been no change in the office due to parties. Suddenly in 1980, a precedent was set that when the parties change, 
the parliamentarian changes. Uh, I didn't find that comforting. Um, but I did become parliamentarian uh, and uh, remained parliamentarian, frankly, only as long as the Republicans uh, maintained control of the Senate, which was six years. Uh, and at the end of that time, um, Senator Baker had left after four, Senator Dole had been uh, majority leader for two, uh, and the Democrats took the Senate, and I was asked to move on, and that's when I started working for Senator Dole. Mm -hmm. Had um, it become clear that uh, Zwiebeln was a Democrat, and, or was it just that he was appointed by a Democrat? Okay, uh, I'll tell you what became clear was that the office of Senate parliamentarian had changed dramatically. Um, I, I can tell you that when I came to the office in the mid-60s, it was not that important an office. Uh, the Senate rules and precedents largely were known by almost every senator. Uh, for this reason. Uh, the Senate was not a partisan body in 1966. Uh, both parties were incredibly split. Uh, the Democratic Party had a large wing of Southern Democrats whose philosophy was totally at variance uh, with many other Democrats. Uh, there was also a fairly large part of the Republican Party uh, that I would call liberals, uh, people like Jacob Javits of New York. Um, and all four of these groups, Southern Democrats, other Democrats, uh, liberal Republicans, uh, conservative Republicans, were minorities. Minorities need to know the rules in the Senate to protect themselves. They did. And frankly, the rules and the precedents were not all that difficult to learn in the 1960s. Uh, and so often what was happening in terms of the parliamentarian's role to senators and staff is that the parliamentarian was simply confirming what these people already knew. And so it wasn't a particularly difficult uh, job of convincing them. And uh, it was, as I say, something of a backwater. That all changed in the 1970s. Uh, Congress uh, decided that a number of very vexing problems would be dealt with through procedural means. Uh, to me, probably the most important one was the Congressional Budget Act of 1974, which set up a very complicated procedure for dealing with the budget. But there were other issues, uh, dealing with the issue of war powers. Uh, Congress set up a regime in which uh, resolutions when the president sent troops into a foreign country uh, would be privileged if those uh, troops were in either hostilities or in imminent danger of hostilities. And I don't think anybody focused on the fact that who would be deciding whether these resolutions, say, under War Powers Act, were privileged? It turned out to be the parliamentarian. Uh, and I very well remember in 1982 when President Reagan sent Marines into Lebanon, a resolution was brought to the desk to force those Marines to be removed under the War Powers Act. Uh, 
and it came to be my decision as to whether that was indeed a privileged resolution under the War Powers Act, I got to decide whether those Marines were either in hostilities or in imminent danger of hostilities. I thought at the time this was way above my pay grade. Uh, I decided that they were. I can tell you I made a lot of enemies by that decision. What happened in the 70s and the 80s and continues to happen to this day is that a lot of procedural decisions are now made by the parliamentarian dealing with procedures that are not well understood and particularly with regard to the Budget Act change, it, it seems like, yearly uh, because they can be written into the budget resolution that's passed uh, every year and therefore uh, it's not confirming knowledge that senators and staff already have. It's often a surprise, it's often an unpleasant surprise and basically the parliamentarian makes enemies by the handful. And that was the story with Sweden. That was the story with Sweden. That was the story with me. That was the story with my successor, uh, who in 1994 uh, was asked to step aside as parliamentarian. Uh, and then, uh, you know, it, uh, I'm hoping that the Senate backs off a little bit because, frankly, they're running out of people. So uh, it's, uh, it is a comfort. Uh, the gentleman who um, succeeded me as parliamentarian in 1986 uh, also succeeded me in 2001. Uh, two weeks after I left, the Senate changed hands. It went Democratic. He stayed on as parliamentarian. When the Republicans took back the Senate in 2002, he stayed on as parliamentarian. And when the Democrats took back the Senate in 2006, he stayed on as parliamentarian. I think we have begun to establish the idea that basically the parliamentarian is doing the best he can. He's not there as a partisan official. And he's making some very difficult calls on how uh, the Senate runs. Do you think any particular senator was instrumental in uh, changing the course there a little bit, or, or not? Uh, well, of course, the most important decisions uh, were made uh, first by Senator Baker uh, in 1980, and then Senator Byrd uh, in 1986, then Senator Dole <laughs> in 1994, and then, uh, ironically, by Senator Lott uh, in May of 2001. Um, I mean, I, I understand that basically it is the call of the majority leader. Uh, parliamentarians are just staff, and they have no tenure, uh, they're not civil service, uh, and they can be dismissed uh, for any reason that a majority leader decides. But as I say, um, it's an office which only operates if people come into it and stay. And if the view is uh, that your uh, job security is really at risk every time uh, the Senate changes party hands, 
uh, and you have no idea how often that's going to be, that, that gives you call, uh, some pause about coming into the office. So, uh, Is that kind of uh, um, orientation period that you had, the three years, is that still expected to, does that still happen? Or does it has kind happened of up to this point. Uh, I, again, there's some irony in that the, the latest person in that office came in under the old expectations. Uh, he came in in 1977. Uh, I was assistant. He was second assistant. I helped train him. Uh, I think he's excellent. Uh, I think he's doing a good job, uh, but it is a thankless job. Um, and, uh, you know, as, as far as I know, that will follow. Uh, there are uh, two assistants uh, under him. Um, they have uh, both been there now long enough that they can uh, sit up at the desk and uh, I think uh, can follow him. Uh, but um, the Senate will have to decide that yes, we think the parliamentarian's office needs a little bit more protection than it had in that period 1980 to 2001. Right. What were the circumstances of your learning uh, you were being replaced? Um, I was approached by uh, a gentleman named Bill Hildenbrand, who was about to become the new Secretary of the Senate. Uh, the parliamentarian works for the Secretary of the Senate, the Chief Administrative Officer. That is a partisan position. It has always been a partisan position. The anomaly was that the parliamentarian who works for the secretary uh, has not been considered to be a partisan position. But you can see there is some tension there. But I was told by the incoming Republican secretary that one, uh, Murray Zwiebeln was not going to be parliamentarian when the Republicans uh, took the Senate in January of 81, and that they were requesting that I take that position. Um, I, I felt, as I say, very uncomfortable with that. Um, and frankly, I remember suggesting to them, uh, Dr. Riddick at that point, I think, was 72, but he was working for the Rules Committee and had stayed on the Senate uh, payroll and was still there, that why don't they bring him back? If, if they're not happy with Murray, uh, you know, he was an excellent parliamentarian. He wasn't that old. Uh, they didn't want to do that. So I became parliamentarian. Um, I, I felt, frankly, one, I was, I was fairly young. Uh, I think I was 43. Uh, Dr. Riddick had been 55 when he became parliamentarian and had been in the office longer than I. I had only been in the office at that point 14 years. I wasn't sure if that was enough time to master it all. There was so much. Uh, and felt rather uncomfortable uh, doing it. What was your first tenure like? Um, I must say uh, it, it, was, uh, it was incredibly enjoyable in that lots of interesting things were happening. Uh, the Budget Act had been used uh, in a major way uh, in the last year of Senator Byrd's uh, majority leadership. 
and uh, it had been used uh, in a way that no one had seen before. Um, it was used to create uh, a bill which could not be filibustered on the Senate floor. Now that's unusual. I mean, the filibuster is kind of entrenched in the Senate. But the budget process allows a bill to be created as long as it is a budget bill, which cannot be filibustered. And um, Senator Byrd had used it uh, to try to achieve a balanced budget in 1980. Uh, Senator Baker used it to implement the Reagan Economic Program in 1981. Uh, so it was a huge endeavor. Uh, there were a lot of procedural ramifications uh, of that bill, and I can remember working closely uh, with the Senate Budget Committee about that and what could be in it and what was appropriate. Um, it was, um, in many ways, um, I, I, although I had a lot of trepidation about becoming parliamentarian, uh, a happy time. Uh, as I said, I, I think earlier, Senator Baker's idea was that all of the precedents uh, should be made publicly available. Uh, and so our office was in charge of that project. Um, and, and I thought we did an excellent job. And for a while, uh, they were. Uh, publicly available. Um, just, just a lot of things were happening uh, that to me were interesting and uh, new uh, and a, a lot of uh, Republicans who had never been powerful uh, suddenly were running the Senate. Um, they were almost like kids in a candy store and, and uh, I remember a statement uh, of Senator Dole when he was told that he was going to be the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee. Who was going to tell Senator Russell Long? I mean, this was seen as an enormous uh, and significant change, and it was. Uh, and in that sense, it was kind of exciting and fun to watch. From your perspective, uh, how would you characterize uh, Senator Baker versus Senator Dole in the majority position? Very different. Um, Senator Baker, um, in a sense, shared this with Senator Dole. They both wanted to be president. And uh, the question was, what is the relationship between being a leader and running for president? Uh, ironically, uh, both of them decided in the end that those were not compatible positions. Uh, Baker left in 1984 uh, so that he could run for president. Uh, Senator Dole left his position as majority leader so that he could run for president. Um, but um, Senator Baker... Um, I, I think, tried to govern uh, by consensus. Um, Senator Dole uh, was not uh, as interested in consensus as he was in winning. And if he could forge a winning coalition on issues that really concerned him, 
that was good for him. And I would, I would show you the difference in their approaches to the budget deficits. Um, we had never seen budget deficits like the deficits that were created uh, in the Reagan administration. Um, and there were interesting reactions to that. Uh, you had a statement, I think, by Congressman Jack Kemp that the Republican Party no longer worships at the shrine of the balanced budget. Clearly, they didn't. Uh, the budget deficit appeared to be uh, $200 billion and climbing as far as the eye could see. Um, nothing really was done about that during Senator Baker's tenure. Senator Dole was very concerned about that deficit. And he was determined to create a coalition that would deal with that. And it was difficult because it was going to involve some painful decisions. Uh, things that were sacred cows, like Social Security, like veterans' benefits. Uh, I mean, entitlements, if they are not dealt with, uh, will eat up the federal budget and leave nothing left. And he knew that. And uh, so he went along with what I would call stronger measures to try to deal with that budget deficit than Senator Baker ever tried to get through. And did one or the other uh, involve the parliamentarian more intimately in the processes? I actually spent uh, an enormous amount of time both in Senator Baker's office when he was leader and Senator Dole's office, and ironically also in Senator Byrd's office, who was minority leader at that time. Uh, I used to shuttle back and forth between those offices. I mean, I saw my role as trying to advise both sides, uh, and I did. Um, one of the issues uh, that was dealt with uh, when Senator Dole uh, was majority leader was the issue of putting the Senate on television. And um, Senator Byrd not only wanted a resolution to put the Senate on television, he wanted uh, a number of changes to be made to the Senate rules uh, along with that. And uh, I can remember going back and forth between the two offices because Senator Dole also had ideas on Senate rules changes. And I would try to give advice to both sides about what would be the effect of those rules changes uh, that were eventually included uh, in that resolution to put the Senate on television. I'm very curious about that. What, what were some of those? Well, um, the... Um, Issue of, of conference reports. Now this is, I mean, this is a pretty arcane issue. But uh, before that resolution to put the Senate on television, it was possible, and it was a regularly done thing, that uh, in the last week of a session, uh, senators would come from a conference with a conference report, often hundreds of pages, uh, and under Senate rules, they could say, Mr. President, I call up this conference report. It's a privileged matter. There's only one copy. It's sitting at the desk. No one has ever seen it. And the Senate would be discussing it. 
And I heard many complaints, frankly, uh, from senators on the floor. This is an outrageous way to proceed. We need copies. Well, uh, one of the rules changes was made, that before a conference report can be called up on the Senate floor, one copy must be on the desk of every senator. A hundred copies must be made. Uh, it may not seem like a big deal, but uh, I, I think it was. Uh, the, the, these were just generally attempts uh, to make the Senate uh, work better. Uh, and another rule that was changed uh, was the rule uh, on limiting debate. Uh, before 1986, uh, if the Senate uh, used its rule, it's called the cloture rule, to end debate, uh, the Senate could continue for 100 hours of consideration on a measure. That is a lot of time. Uh, I can remember in 1982 we almost missed Christmas because of the 100-hour rule and we weren't going to use it up before Christmas was coming. Uh, and that was changed. It was changed to 30 hours, uh, which is a much more reasonable time that you can get through. You can put the Senate in round-the-clock sessions and within a day and a half you've used up the 30 hours. Do you see a relationship between those changes and the fact that they were going to be exposed on television? Um, th there was a lot of nervousness about the Senate being exposed on television. Uh, this, the House had been on television at that point for seven years. Uh, what I heard, uh, and it was a, a very unhappy statement of, of a number of people who said that in the view of the American people, Congress was the House. This they could see. This could be on the evening news. And suddenly the Senate didn't exist. Uh, and they thought that was terrible. On the other hand, they didn't want the Senate really changed. And they were quite concerned that putting the Senate on television would make enormous changes in the Senate. And um, I frankly thought they were right. Um, I, was, uh, I was convinced that something that had happened in the Senate all the time up to 1986, which was long periods in which the Senate was doing nothing but listening to a quorum call, would never happen in the future because suddenly some senator would see that we were in a quorum call and he could have an audience of millions simply by walking to the floor and making a speech. And therefore this would happen and we would never have another quorum call. I'm not sure why, but I could tell you that the Senate that you see on television is much like the Senate I used to see before television with only one significant change, and that's the charts. You didn't have charts before 1986. Now you have these dazzling charts that look good on television, and they're, they're quite sophisticated, uh, but that's, to me, the only change that really has happened as a result of television. Did you go through a, uh, a wardrobe revamping or uh, have more freaking haircuts or something yourself? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, there is a, a dress code in the Senate. It didn't really change because of television. 
but uh, and so I mean basically the the, the, uh, the wardrobe that you saw before television basically was the same wardrobe after TV. And your your degree of ardent attention to matters uh, remained the same. Well, uh, again, your your job is there to advise the chair and advise people who come up. You you continue to do that, whether or not you're on television. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, then came the sad day in '87, was it, when uh, you were informed that you were okay uh, in December of 1987. Um, I was called into the office of Senator Robert Byrd and told that I would no longer be parliamentarian. Uh, at that point, I'm uh, 48 years old, as I recall, and I have a son at Duke and two daughters uh, headed off to college. Um, I'm too young to retire. Uh, and so I go to Senator Dole and I tell him what has happened. And I tell him that he's about to become the minority. Uh, he knows he's going to become the minority leader but uh, that I think I could be of help to him uh, working as a uh, consultant on parliamentary matters. Uh, he agrees. And uh, so on opening day of Congress in 1987, I leave the parliamentarian's office and I go to his minority leader's office uh, where I spend the next eight years when he is minority leader. Um, I, I do think I did help, um, and particularly in the first two years, because the first two years were the only two years that Robert Byrd was majority leader again. He left that post and George Mitchell became majority leader for the next six. But in those two years, uh, in a sense, dealing with Senator Byrd, whose knowledge of the rules is incredible, and whose ability to use them is also incredible. Uh, I, I think it was helpful uh, that I could be there to advise Senator Dole about what he could do to try to counter uh, some of the uh, parliamentary uh, problems that Senator Byrd might cause for the Republicans. So were you a staff member? I was on the Senate staff, yes. No, you were on the Senator's staff. Well, I was in the—he has a staff uh, of in his personal office, which is in the Hart Building, and then there's a, a, a staff that's in what is called the Minority Leader's Office, uh, and that's where I was. Sorry. Yeah. Um, and that was a full-time— That was a full-time job. Um, I was on the floor a, a great deal, uh, not on the parliamentarian's chair, obviously, but there are staff chairs— uh, in the back, uh, or in the cloakroom, or uh, in the, the leader's office, again, uh, dealing uh, oftentimes with both senators and staff. In, in some ways, uh, it was similar uh, to the job that I had done before. Lots of Republican senators wanted uh, advice, and I was happy to give it to them. And that was probably a fairly novel thing uh, to have a former parliamentarian working in that kind of uh, role. It or? was, um, in a sense, not all that novel because uh, when Murray Zwieben had been asked to leave, uh, he performed much that function for Democrats. 
So um, I would see him on the Senate floor. Um, I, um, I, I did something when he was on the Senate floor that um, made me really happy later, in a sense. Uh, when the parliamentarian had left in 1974, he'd, he'd been given a, an honorific. Uh, a resolution was passed that said he was parliamentarian emeritus of the United States Senate. Well, being parliamentarian emeritus is not only an honorific, you're specifically mentioned in the Senate rules as having permanent floor privileges. And um, I thought that Murray Sweepman deserved that. And so two years after he had been fired as parliamentarian, I went to both leaders, Senator Baker and Senator Byrd, and asked if they would sponsor a resolution to name Murray Sweepman a parliamentarian emeritus of the U.S. Senate. They agreed to do so, and they did. And so he was given permanent floor privileges for the rest of his life. Um, ironically, on opening day of 1987, Senator Dole put forward a resolution that named me a parliamentarian emeritus of the United States Senate, giving me per permanent floor privileges. And in response to that, when my successor um, was removed as parliamentarian and um, but what stayed in the office as deputy parliamentarian I pushed through a resolution to name him a parliamentarian emeritus uh, I'm hoping that this kind of situation doesn't repeat itself and you have to do that but um, ironically uh, the present parliamentarian of the Senate is not only parliamentarian, he's also parliamentarian emeritus. <laughs> Another exclusive club. Yes. On <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Um, just in a qualitative sense, uh, what was it like being uh, in, in under Dole's influence and working in his office? Uh, I don't know when I've had more fun in the sense that in the parliamentarian's office, you never win and you never lose. You're not supposed to take sides. You see the fights out there, but you're not part of them. And you're not supposed to have any joy or any sadness at how they turn out. Well, that's not true when you're in the minority leader's office. You pick sides and you have um, you know, joy when you can win and you have sadness when you lose. Uh, but I will tell you, the minority leader of the Senate is a powerful position. You don't lose them all by any means, and you are often at least part of a lot of winning coalitions. Uh, and uh, particularly when Senator Dole uh, began working with the new majority leader uh, after Byrd, uh, George Mitchell, um, there was a period in which those two people had enormous respect for each other. They had worked together on the finance committee. And uh, they could often work together uh, to do important things for the Senate. The Senate really works best when the two leaders are working together. 
And so, in a sense, I became part of a kind of a coalition. I would often meet uh, with the parliamentarian, uh, with Democratic staff, as well as Republican staff, uh, as, you know, they were trying to get through what were often bipartisan uh, proposals. Uh, I still remember uh, in 1990, um, there was a, a, a group that met at Andrews Air Force Base trying to work out how they were going to deal with several problems. Um, one uh, was the fact that we had all these troops over in Saudi Arabia. And it was clear, this is uh, in uh, August of 1990 and September of 1990 and October of 1990, it became clearer and clearer they weren't just going to sit in Saudi Arabia. At some point, they were going to move into Kuwait. Um, and this was expensive. And uh, how were we going to support these troops. And so uh, the solution uh, was created. Uh, we were going to raise taxes. Now, um, this was a fateful decision. I think it frankly led to the defeat of President George Bush because he had promised that he would not raise taxes. But uh, when he had promised that, we weren't sitting with 500,000 troops in Saudi Arabia and having to support them in a war that was going to occur in 1991. But then it was the job of Senator Dole and Senator Mitchell working together to support that on the Senate floor. And uh, it was not universally supported. Uh, and uh, I know Senator Dole had a lot of complaining uh, from people on uh, his side. Um, and uh, so it, it was a bipartisan effort that successfully got that bill through, successfully raised the money uh, to support the war that finally came about uh, in January of 1991. And your role in that? There were some procedural things that, frankly, I came up with that helped uh, both Mitchell and Dole uh, in dealing uh, with that bill. Yeah. And at that time, um, with you as former parliamentarian operating around and being influential and whatnot, do you think you were ever kind of a threat to the sitting parliamentarian, or, or were you all such good buddies that that wouldn't have been an issue? Um, it was uncomfortable. Uh, and it, that did not make me happy. Uh, I, I was frankly very glad that the sitting parliamentarian, who as I say was forced to step down in 1994, had an, a period of done seven more years when I'm back in the office for us to try to deal with that eight-year period. Because, uh, you know, he would have been very happy if I'd have just disappeared from the face of the earth. And I understood that. Uh, it was a very unpleasant uh, situation in that um, I wasn't there to help him. I was there to help Senator Dole. And uh, 
only after, as I say, we got back together and stayed in the office at adjoining desks for seven years that we kind of worked through some of the things that had happened in the previous eight years. We're now actually very good friends. Uh, I left the office in 2001. I've been in the office probably once a week uh, since then. Uh, of course, I'm no longer a threat. I don't work for anybody on the Senate. I teach. Um, I teach at the common alma mater of the two of us. We both went to Georgetown Law. And I teach over at Georgetown Law, and I bring my students over, and he talks to them. He's happy to talk to uh, Georgetown Law students since he went there himself. Um, and so it, it's kind of evolved very nicely. But I cannot uh, say that there were not periods of tension during that eight years when I was seen as giving advice to the, the minority leader uh, that he would have been just as happy if uh, the minority leader hadn't known about. You've been uh, referencing him anonymously, but that is Alan Fr Alan Fruman, yes, I'm sorry. Yes, the present parliamentarian, Alan Fruman, yes. Right. I'm, sorry. Um, I'm, I'm curious to know, and I, let's see, I think I need to change tape, actually, because we're just okay. about at the end of this hour. Sure. So we'll just take a break here for a moment. Um, I, I think probably you um, had a kind of unusual perspective when you were working in the leader's office for Dole uh, because you weren't coming through the partisan uh, campaigning track or anything like that. So you, you were kind of an observer. And I, I'm wondering, could you characterize the sort of power structure of that office as a little cosmos? Well, first of all, it wasn't a little cosmos. Um, the office of majority leader is an office that has gone, undergone a lot of transformation in the period that I've watched it. Uh, I first went into a leader's office in 1966 when I went into Senator Mansfield's office, which consisted of Senator Mansfield and a secretary uh, in a very small room. Uh, it was transformed largely by Senator Howard Baker, uh, who in 1981 told the new minority leader, Senator Robert Byrd, that he could stay where he was. And this was seen as a generous gesture. And that Senator Baker was going to stay in his office, which at that point was smaller than Senator Byrd's office. But what Senator Baker didn't say was that the offices next to his, which were then the Senate dispersing office, and went on through a no series of rooms right up to the House side of the Capitol, were going to be taken over by Senator Baker. And the dispersing office was going to be moved off to the new Hart office building. And that's precisely what happened. And suddenly Senator Baker had a huge suite of offices and a huge staff of people. And when, Sir, when Senator Dole became majority leader in 1985, he inherited that huge suite of offices. Now, in 1987, uh, evidently there was a view on the part of Senator Byrd that that was really a huge grab of territory. 
and that Senator Dole should lose one of his rooms. And so he did. Uh, Senator Byrd took away one room. That still left quite a bit. And when Senator Mitchell became majority leader, that room was restored. And so uh, you have now uh, a tradition, and I will tell you that uh, Senator Byrd's old offices uh, no longer are the office of the Democratic leader. They're now the office of the whip. Uh, and what had been the office of the Secretary of the Senate, a huge suite of offices, is now the office of the Democratic leader. So both leaders have very large suites of offices and very large staffs. Uh, so I was only one of, of a large number of people uh, that worked for Senator Dole in uh, his, his leadership office. Um, I... I liked it for for many reasons, but one of which, uh, Senator Dole's main office where he sat was right next to the press office, and right next to the press office was my desk. And he had a habit of leaving his office, walking to the press office, talking to those people, walking out, and there were six people in the next room talking to them, walking on through and talking to other people. And he would do this seven or eight times a day. He had enormous access. Uh, Now, this is the only senator I've ever worked for, so I don't have anything to compare it with. But um, you really felt part of what was going on. And uh, the thing about the Senate is that, frankly, you never know what is going to go on. So it was my job, uh, at that point, of course, the Senate was on television. And there was a television there uh, which had the Senate floor on it. And it was my job, one, to monitor what was going on. Was there something that uh, you know I could help with, that I could help deal with, uh, and, but also just to follow uh, what was in his mind about what was going to happen. And so that was a kind of constant interchange. This was very different, as I say, from being in the parliamentarian's office, which is something of an ivory tower uh, in which people uh, come and if, if they don't like the advice they're being given, and they often don't, uh, are not hesitant at all about letting you know. Uh, I mean, I love the fact that basically the people I talked with were very grateful to get the advice. This was unusual. Uh, you don't usually have somebody who's in a position uh, to give parliamentary advice in, in a senator's office. And so uh, I felt very um, happy uh, about being there. Mm-hmm. What about your observations of the other players? Who did, uh, who did uh, the senator rely on particularly, or who had great influence over him? Oh, well, there was no question that the, uh, the most powerful staffer by far uh, was Sheila Burke. Sheila Burke was the chief of staff. Uh, if you heard something from Sheila Burke, it was as if you'd heard it from the senator. Uh, they were that much in sync. And uh, everybody else was uh, not in that position. 
So uh, if, if I couldn't get to him, if I could get to Sheila, then I could find out, you know, definitively uh, what the situation was. And despite the office's size, was it uh, pretty well working and efficient? Uh, it was well working and efficient because he de demanded it. Um, I, uh, I don't think I've ever worked, with the possible exception of Robert Byrd, uh, for anyone uh, or with anyone who I thought worked harder. Um, and the only reason I would make possibly that exception is that um, Senator Dole actually had a life. Uh, you know, he was married to a very powerful woman uh, and he had other things that he did. Uh, in my view, Senator Byrd was married to the Senate and uh, it was his life, it is his life, and therefore uh, he, he worked uh, in terms of his Senate job all the time. Uh, weekends, um, I have been called at home by Senator Byrd on Christmas Day. Um, Senator Dole never called me at home on Christmas Day. Do <laughs> no. you recall what the call was about on Christmas Day? Okay. Um, I wish I could tell you. I, I, all I remember is trying to black it out, thinking, I really don't want to be talking to Senator Byrd today. <laughs> But it didn't seem to bother him. So, you know, uh, I interviewed uh, Senator uh, Armstrong of uh, Colorado um, one of a my long favorites. time ago now, and one of the things he talked about was how senators gain a highly exaggerated sense of their own importance and so he did. forth. Yeah, and he—that's he one of the reasons so he fun. left. Yes. Well, ironically, he's the reason that that change in the conference report uh, being available. It was his speeches on the floor that I remembered. Uh, and I'm not sure he was even still in the Senate when that was put through. But uh, I remembered them well, and I thought how perfectly appropriate. Here he was being asked to vote on a conference report, and he couldn't even get a copy of it. Uh, and that's... It should be called the Armstrong provision of the Senate rules. <laughs> but how do you account for for one member of the human race thinking that he can call another member of the human race on a national holiday like that uh, with impunity? I mean, where do they get this idea? <laughs> oh, I, I must say, I, I wasn't offended, uh, and I didn't feel it untoward. Um, the Senate is a family. It's a small enough group. I felt like I was being called by a family member. Now, uh, it's uh, it maybe strange, and in, in, in a way, I was flattered. Uh, I mean, Senator Byrd, to me, was uh, a kind of a demigod. Um, he he cared about procedure in a way that uh, no other member of the Senate did. Uh, my whole life was procedure. Uh, I was pleased to be able to help him. So, uh, no, I wasn't offended at all. Tell me about the steps then where you were brought back in to the parliamentarian's role. 
Well, when um, the Democrats lost the Senate uh, in uh, 1994, I was still in Senator Dole's office. Uh, and frankly, uh, Sheila Burke called me in and asked me what job I would like now that the Republicans were back in control. And I told her, quite frankly, the only job I ever wanted in the Senate was the job of parliamentarian. And if that could be arranged, uh, that would make me very, very happy. Uh, it was her job to deal with the, the parliamentarian at the time, Alan Fruman, and convince him that, one, I should come back, and two, that he should stay. Uh, and that, uh, I think, was a very delicate thing that she did, but the bottom line is she did it. Uh, and uh, there was an interesting thing in that she was about to become the secretary of the Senate. So she was about to become our boss. Uh, but on January uh, of 1995, uh, I came back. Uh, I remember sitting in the parliamentarian's chair, and I remember the first senator who came up to congratulate me, and that was Robert Byrd, uh, which I thought was lovely. So uh, I didn't know how it was going to work out, but I can tell you after seven years, it did work out that Alan and I um, are friends, uh, and it was a friendship based on mutual respect and what we saw e of each other uh, in that uh, seven-year period. Uh, did Dole in any particular way uh, acknowledge this change that was occurring for you personally? Okay. Um, not that I recall. I mean, it was, this was, of course, uh, totally in his control. But it was all handled by Sheila Burke, um, who, as I say, spoke for Dole. If you heard it from her, you'd heard it from him. Yeah. And so after your departure, where was Senator Dole getting his uh, advice on parliamentary matters? Well, basically the parliamentarian gives advice to the leaders. So, so, I mean, so no one replaced you in his office is what I'm no. driving at. And how, how was working with him and observing him as majority leader in those last two years of his Senate career? Uh, well, first of all, he, he didn't stay two years. Okay. He left, um, and to me, they were not a happy period. Um, there is nothing, I think, that is more difficult than to try to be the majority leader of the Senate and run for President of the United States. Uh, to me, Dole had been a very successful majority leader uh, in the period 85 to 86. And the reason he had been successful is that he worked very well with various Democrats. Uh, if it was uh, Americans with disabilities, he worked with Tom Harkin. Democrats liked to work with him. But Democrats were not going to work with the person that they knew 
was going to be running against their candidate for president. They had no reason to, in effect, make his job easier. And they had every reason to make it more difficult. And they did. Um, and um, it, it, it made it incredibly frustrating for him. Uh, I think that's the reason he left. Uh, it became clear. He could either run for president or he could be majority leader. He could not possibly do both. And he wanted to run for president. And that's uh, why he left. But his second term as majority leader was not a happy time. Not happy for him or... Not happy for him. Not happy for the Senate. Um, it was... Um, I, I would call it a time of some great strife. Um, basically, um, of course, this was the the third uh, year of of President Clinton's presidency, and um, President Clinton um, had been. Uh, uh, there was an attempt, and I think it was much more on the part of uh, Speaker Gingrich than Dole, uh, to marginalize the president. Well, you cannot marginalize the president of the United States. And uh, their attempt, uh, I think, uh, on the part of Gingrich uh, made him look foolish. And then Dole, I think, was caught in the middle. Uh, he knew that, but he couldn't criticize Gingrich who was immensely powerful and popular. Uh, and he certainly didn't want to try to defend Clinton. Uh, so he really was trapped. Uh, so I, I think he was unhappy on all kinds of levels. Um, over the period of... I guess I'm hesitating here because actually I think uh, you know our scope here is really Dole's time in the Senate, right. and I'd love to go on uh, sure. with the remainder up to '01 for you, and maybe we should talk about that a little bit at the end. But right now we're sort of concentrating on Dole. Yes. <laughs> right, right. right. But <clears throat> is there anything else we need to say about Dole from your well, perspective? Well, we've said almost nothing about Senator Dole's period. Uh, from 1968, when he came to the Senate, mm -hmm. uh, to the period, for example, when he ran for vice president uh, with uh, President Ford, uh, and his period uh, as chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, uh, to me there's a lot of significant stuff that was going on uh, in that period. Uh, you have his working uh, with Senator George McGovern, uh, who I think was both a, a close personal friend. Uh, they both served in uh, World War II, uh, and they worked together on the food stamp program, which uh, I think was a credit uh, to Senator Dole to work on that. Um, there was a, a relationship, and it was so clear, because various senators would come up uh, and, and, and form a little group, and by working in the Senate at the desk, you would you would hear the conversations. Um, 
Senator Dole had been in a hospital uh, in Michigan. Uh, Senator Phil Hart was there. Uh, Senator Danny Inoue was there. Uh, that was an incredible bond. Um, so the, the relationships were not partisan. They were based on a lot of other things. And they allowed Dole, in a sense, to play a role, even though he was in the minority, uh, that had uh, great influence. And of course, then when the Republicans became the majority party, uh, he was chairman of probably uh, the most important committee because it was the finance committee that handled the Reagan signature issue of tax cuts. Uh, and he, he not only uh, managed to get successfully uh, through uh, the Reagan uh, tax cuts, but he also successfully got through uh, a, a tax bill uh, that it was at least aimed at trying to deal with the deficit. Um, and uh, so that he, I mean, he had an enormous influence uh, as chairman of the Senate Finance Committee. Um, he, um, and I think that's probably the reason he finally uh, became elected leader. What Republicans saw from 19... 80 to 84, uh, were actually, there were, there were five senators that ran for leader in 1984. Uh, Senator Jim McClure, who I think was seen as the leader of the conservative wing. Uh, Senator Richard Luger, uh, who was seen as a, a very impressive internationalist. Uh, Senator Pete Domenici, who had basically uh, run the budget committee. Senator Ted Stevens, who had been Howard Baker's whip, uh, and Senator Dole. And I don't think that was an easy choice for the Republican Party. Uh, but I think what they saw about Dole in his running of the Finance Committee impressed enough of them that they thought, this is what we want. Uh, and I think they saw the, the problem uh, that was going to have to be dealt with as a problem of the budget. And you can attach, attack the budget uh, only from two sides, taxes and spending. And they thought uh, that Dole could balance those, uh, and he tried very hard to do that. Uh, he only had two years as majority leader. Um, the deficit went down significantly. Uh, in those two years. Uh, and then when the Democrats took over after the 86 election, uh, it again became kind of uh, a tax and spend kind of place, and the deficit went back up. But, uh, I mean, that to me was an extraordinarily significant period in which he played uh, a huge role. What about uh, the tax bill of 81 versus the tax bill of 82 and his role there? Well, he was in charge on both of those. Uh, the tax bill of 81 was basically the Reagan program. Uh, it was, uh, you know, I think 10, 10, 5, or anyway, a, th a three-year tax cut 
uh, I think started off with 5% and then the next two years of 10%. Uh, but I think by 1982 it became clear if you just didn't do anything about this, uh, the deficits were going to explode uh, beyond measure. And so he came up with, I don't know if it's accurate, uh, I think it was called at the time, the largest tax increase in American history. Uh, $98 billion is what I remember being the figure uh, in 1982. Uh, but, uh, I mean, it raised taxes on tobacco. Um, it, it, it hit some sacred cows. Uh, and it almost failed, uh, and it was only saved, and I think it was a tribute to Senator Dole's leadership that it was saved by the two senators from North Carolina, for whom voting for a tobacco tax was not a plus. And at the last moment, when it looked like it might go down, Senators Jesse Helms and John East voted in favor of it. Um, did you instantly uh, see that Dole would become uh, an important figure when he arrived in the Senate? What was your perception? In 1968? Yeah. Um, it was hard, frankly, in 1968 to look at any Republican as being a power in the Senate. Um, the Republican Party, first of all, was small. Uh, when I came to the Senate in 1966, there were only 32 Republicans. Um, and, um, you know, they gradually grew uh, to the high 30s, um, but um, the Senate was, first of all, not as partisan a place. And uh, the Senate was largely run by people who had been there a long time. I mean, Richard Russell was still there when... Uh, I came to the Senate, and he was still quite powerful. Um, and so the view was, first of all, you didn't talk when you came to the Senate. That has changed. Uh, you waited, and your first speech often was made after you'd been there two or three years. It was called your maiden speech, and it was a big event. That doesn't even exist anymore. So you didn't tend to look at freshman senators and think, well, this is somebody who's a comer. You, you waited uh, for them to uh, gain uh, some stature. Uh, but uh, the, I mean, to me, when I really started focusing on Senator Dole was when he became chairman of the Finance Committee uh, in 1981. And uh, then he clearly had a huge role. And uh, had the respect of his colleagues. So uh, that's when I really started paying attention. Right. Um, anything more to say about impartiality in terms of, of the uh, parliamentarian? Or, or maybe another way to put it is, what does one look for in terms of temperament for a parliamentarian? Well, it is my view that the present parliamentarian as the parliamentarians before have been impartial, that what they are trying to do is interpret the Senate rules and procedures and precedents uh, as they understand them. Uh, the problem comes when uh, there is nothing solid 
to base that decision on. And there have been some uh, new procedures, and the budget was certainly one of them. There is no history. Uh, I've talked about precedents going back to 1884. They're of no help in interpreting the Congressional Budget Act. And often these procedures are created on a year-by-year basis uh, as new budget resolutions are adopted that contain new procedures in them. And so uh, you're kind of flying blind. Uh, But I don't know of any decision that has been made by any parliamentarian that was not, quote, impartial. I noticed uh, that you served as the parliamentarian for the Republican Platform Committee. I did. Once once I started working for Senator Dole, and therefore became identified as a Republican staffer, um, the first convention that was held uh, after that, which was in 1988 in New Orleans, was chaired by a senator, Uh, It was Senator Bob Caston of Wisconsin. He needed a parliamentarian, and he asked if I would go. Uh, I think uh, maybe uh, my performance there led to later requests, because the bottom line is uh, I have served uh, at uh, conventions since then. I was uh, in New York uh, for the 2004 convention, uh, when Senator Frist uh, was the chairman of the Platform Committee. So you didn't serve uh, in that capacity while you were parliamentarian? No. No, I, I frankly did not think that would ever be appropriate while I was parliamentarian. So mm-hmm. I only served uh, during the time that I either was working for Senator Dole or after I left the parliamentarian's office. Which senators come to your mind as what I'm going to call the parliamentarian ideal, Robert Byrd. Um, And I don't think he has any peer. Um, And there are, I think, a number of reasons for that. Uh, First of all, again, there used to be a system in the Senate, I don't really think it exists anymore, where senators uh, had mentors. Well, he had the best. He had Robert, or he had Richard Russell. Georgia, who took him under his wing, and uh, he made a point of uh, reading the book of precedent, Senate procedure, asking questions about them. Uh, He would come up to the desk uh, and really put me through my paces with things that he wanted to know about what that book said. Um, There was Possibly a senator who, uh, for a short period of time, uh, was his rival. And that was Senator Allen of Alabama, James Allen. And the reason, Senator Allen had been the lieutenant governor of Alabama. And Alabama Senate, which is presided over by the lieutenant governor, uses U.S. Senate rules. And so he had learned them before he came to the Senate. And uh, he knew them. And uh, in spite of the fact that he was a Democrat and Robert Byrd was the Democratic leader, um, he would challenge Byrd 
and challenge him from a knowledge base. And I will say those, those fights were dazzling to watch. They were really two masters. Uh, but Alan uh, died uh, in the 1970s. Uh, possibly Senator Jesse Helms might be considered uh, in that category. Uh, but uh, no one else really comes to mind as someone who almost devoted themselves to being a, a parliamentary uh, master. What about the opposite side? Were, were there some who, quote-unquote, trashed uh, precedents? And, uh... Well, there were senators who, who hated, uh, basically, uh, the way that the Senate ran. I mean, when I came to the Senate, there was a senator from uh, Pennsylvania, named Joseph Clark, uh, who was clearly an enemy of the parliamentarian's office, of the way the Senate ran, uh, he hated the filibuster. Uh, he wanted to change the place uh, in every way. Um, ironically, uh, he ran for a post in 1968 of secretary to the Democratic Conference and ran against Robert C. Byrd, and he lost. <laughs> and so Byrd became secretary of the conference and then two years later became whip and then seven 1977 became majority leader, uh, and Joseph Clark left the Senate. Nobody in the parliamentarian's office was really crushed when he left. <laughs> how, how did senators uh, learn the rules and regs? Uh, did, did, was there an orientation, or did they just... It was much more a mentoring system. Uh, there were senators who basically took other senators under their wing. As I say, I don't think that system exists anymore, and frankly, I don't think there are many senators who know uh, Senate rules and procedures anymore, which makes the job of being parliamentarian that much harder. And so, as a result, parliamentarians are called upon more frequently now. Yes. I mean, you're talking about... But, but not with happy results. I mean, there's, there's, there is a lot of... Uh, either public or semi-public sniping about the parliamentarian's office, something which I never heard in the 1960s. Uh, but it's partly because the decisions that they make have such a much wider effect now. Uh, they may be called procedural, but their effect is often substantive. And senators really don't like to have uh, their positions, uh, in effect, undercut by a decision of a parliamentarian, an unelected, fairly anonymous official. So, how would you um, how would you express the changes that have occurred over the years of your association with the U.S. Senate? What are the biggest changes? Well, first of all, the Senate has become um, a very partisan body. Uh, you no longer have uh, the Southern Democrats as a block. Uh, you don't have many senators in the Republican Party I would call moderate, not to mention liberal. Uh, and so the parties have become much more homogenous 
and therefore it becomes much more difficult uh, to form coalitions uh, across the aisle. And that makes it difficult for whoever is trying to lead the Senate. Because the Senate rules are not designed, as they are in the House, for a majority to rule. The Senate rules right now are designed to allow 60 votes to make important decisions. Well, neither party has 60 votes. Uh, neither party has had 60 votes since 1976. So we've never seen a Senate where basically one party could almost ignore the other party. Uh, and that situation, I think, is particularly difficult right now for majority leader of the Senate. Uh, I mean, Senator Reid has 51 votes on a good day. Uh, and only 49 of those are Democrats. Then you have to add uh, Senator Sanders of Vermont uh, and Senator Lieberman of uh, Connecticut, uh, neither which are, are at least uh, call themselves Democrats, but they do tend to vote with Reid on, on important issues. But uh, that's, that's very hard to try to lead the Senate in that situation. Um, it's frankly, uh, I'm sure, more fun to be Senator McConnell. You don't have the, the onus of being the leader of the Senate. Nobody's blaming you for what the Senate is doing, but you have the power to determine what the Senate does. Um, talk a little bit about the change from the 67 to the 60 the, the, um, for cloture. Okay. What prompted that? And wasn't that Bird? No. There's some irony. That was not Bird at all. Uh, that was a, a trifecta of three people. One was the vice president of the United States, Nelson Rockefeller. Uh, two was a senator from uh, Minnesota, Walter Mondale. And the third was a senator from Kansas, Pearson. Um, I mean, I mentioned that uh, Republicans uh, were of a different ideological stripe when I was uh, first coming into the Senate. Pearson was of a little different ideological stripe uh, than other Republicans, and he could work very well with Senator Mondale. And Senators Mondale and Pearson decided in 1975, uh, when Nelson Rockefeller was the vice president, that the Senate's cloture rule, which at that point was two-thirds, needed to be changed, and it needed to be changed uh, in a way that uh, I still look back and shudder a little bit. Um, their, their plan, which was successful, was that uh, in 1975 um, a, a resolution to change that rule would be sent to the desk and the resolution would state in the wording of the resolution that this was a constitutional issue, that the Senate had the right to change its rules. And since it was a constitutional issue and the Senate had a right to change its rules, that it was incumbent upon 
the vice president to put the question to the Senate without debate on adoption of that resolution. Okay. Then, in their view, uh, if a senator made a point of order that such a resolution was not in order in the Senate, since this was a constitutional question, the vice president would submit to the Senate the question, is the resolution in order? And that is a debatable question. But any question before the Senate is subject to a motion to table, which is a killing motion, which is not debatable. And that if indeed that point of order was tabled, that the vice president should follow the wording of the resolution and put the question to the Senate without debate. I mean, I, I shudder because I still think the idea that the presiding officer should enforce a resolution which has not been yet voted on and follow the wording of it is logically absurd. But it was not absurd to the vice president, and he stated that that was exactly what he was going to do. And that is exactly what he did. But there ensued uh, a period of, of what I will call chaos. Because indeed you could have a period without debate, but you couldn't have a period without votes. And senators came up with the most outrageous excuses for votes. Motions to adjourn, motions to reconsider, motions to appeal the ruling of the chair. It went on for several days. And my view is it would still be going on because these senators who were against this were furious except that the vice president decided to shut this down. And so he stopped recognizing senators. That is just unheard of. But he did it. He forced the vote. Uh, Two weeks later, Vice President Rockefeller returned to the Senate to apologize to the Senate for having not recognized a senator seeking recognition. And I thought at the time, that's very nice. What does that apology do? It's already been done. The rule has been changed. The way the rule was changed led a lot of people to think this was an illegitimate exercise of power. Let's look at this rule that we've just changed. Let's see if there's some holes in this rule. And there were. And from the time the rule was changed in 1975, for four years, it was almost a worthless rule. Yes, you could end debate with 60 votes. But what happened when you had that vote? Well, each senator was limited to one hour of debate. But there was no limit on the time on amendments or quorum calls. You could run out the clock on a post-cloture filibuster. 
And that was shown, frankly, uh, when uh, President Carter was trying to get through his energy program. The Senate invoked cloture, I believe, in September of 1977. It was opposed uh, largely by only two senators, Senator Metzenbaum of Ohio, Senator James Averesk of South Dakota. For eight days, they used amendments and quorum calls to delay the Senate. At the end of the eight days, I think each of them had used about two minutes each of their one hour of debate time. And it was clear this was going to go on forever. At which point, Senator Byrd, who was the majority leader, stepped in and set a series of precedents about what could happen in the post-cloture period with the aid of the vice president, Walter Mondale, and shut that filibuster down. But because of that, the rule was changed in 1979 to put an overall cap of everything that happened after cloture at 100 hours, which was then later uh, reduced in 1986 to 30. So now you do have a workable uh, cloture rule. But uh, the way that rule was changed uh, was cited, frankly, uh, a few years back. It was referred to then as the nuclear option when senators wanted to shut down debate on judicial nominations. And my view at the time was, well, it was done once, it could be done again. All you knew was a compliant vice president uh, and an ability to basically uh, say that something should be not debatable, and uh, there you are. This is just a real minor question to clear up my own ignorance. Um, it has to be uh, three-fifths of the Senate, not three-fifths of those present. That's right. Uh, the the cloture rule, uh, as it read uh, in 1974, was two-thirds of those present and voting, a quorum being present. So that could be a varying number from 67 if there were 100, uh, down to as low as 34 if there were only 51 voting. But right now it is a solid 60, irrespective of how many vote. Your mentioning Rockefeller just brought something to my mind, and that is when the vice president sits as president, he always, if he attends the Senate in his role, he is always a presiding officer. Oh, correct? yes. He, has, right. he, can, he can bump anyone. And if he wants to preside, uh, he can. Okay. So what about holding hands of, of vice presidents over your uh, time? In well, again, that has changed so much. Uh, the vice president, when I came to the Senate, was Hubert Humphrey. Um, Hubert Humphrey was not a part of the inner circle of Lyndon Johnson's administration. Um, and as a result, he spent a lot of time in the Senate. Uh, he did like the Senate. He had been a senator starting in 1948. He had been the majority whip. Uh, and senators liked him, and he played a role in the Senate. Uh, he would make rulings that the parliamentarian didn't advise him to make, and it was so much the worse for the parliamentarian. 
uh, I remember at the time being kind of embarrassed. You know, I worked for this office and we had no influence over the vice president. If he wanted to rule one way and we thought that was inappropriate, uh, so much the worse for the parliamentarian. Uh, I thought many years later, I wish we had that again. Because when they didn't like Vice President Humphrey's rulings, they yelled at him. They didn't yell at the parliamentarian. Uh, that, that time has gone. Um, it was uh, Jimmy Carter who gave the first West Wing office to a vice president, Walter Mondale. And that has continued to this day. And basically, vice presidents have left the Senate. Uh, you just don't see them. Uh, and so um, it, it has not been uh, my experience to uh, have much of a relationship uh, with a vice president uh, over the years because they've simply been gone. What about Spiro Agnew? <coughs> well, he wanted to play a role. Um, he tried to play the role of administration lobbyist. Uh, and there were some close votes in the Senate in which I remember him going down on the floor and trying to lobby senators on the votes. They hated it. Senator's view of a vice president, he's supposed to be their lobbyist to the president, not the president's lobbyist to them. And uh, Agnew's reception, I think, was so unpleasant that he stopped doing it. Yeah. Did Dole run into any trouble when he was, quote-unquote, Nixon's hatchet man for that reason? Uh, well, first of all, he wasn't the leader. Uh, Hugh Scott was the leader. So people didn't look uh, to Dole in a way that they would have had he been leader. They, they looked to Hugh Scott. What was Scott going to do? And it's my understanding, at least, it was Scott and Goldwater who delivered the message to Nixon. Um, it was, um, you know, it was it it was just a different situation. Um, have we said everything? No, I, I still want to ask you a question about Bird that I asked you off right. camera for a moment. Uh, with his familiarity, his, his total command of, of the rules and such, uh, was he able to use them in a strategic way and bend them and, and maybe sometimes be almost an obstructionist? Not so much an obstructionist, but uh, if, if he didn't like the rules, uh, he was not averse to setting precedents that changed the rules. Um, uh, you say that you you uh, interviewed uh, Senator Armstrong. Uh, we have a precedent uh, in the Senate that in the parliamentarian's office is called the Armstrong precedent. And uh, it's called that because uh, Senator Byrd did not like what was happening on appropriation bills. Uh, in the 1970s, uh, when he was majority leader, uh, senators were taking advantage of a little loophole in the rule on appropriations, 
which says that uh, if you send an amendment to the desk, which is legislation, and the rules of the Senate say that such an amendment is not an order, that you can raise a defense to that point of order. And that is the defense uh, that the House has opened the door, that the House has legislation, and therefore the Senate has a right to perfect that. And you do that by raising uh, an issue called germaneness, whether your amendment is germane to the House language. That is never ruled on by the chair. That's a vote of the Senate. And what was happening uh, was that if the Senate liked an amendment, it voted it germane. And often there was no House legislative language at all, but it didn't bother the Senate. And so uh, senators were getting votes on amendments, and Burr didn't like it. And it was an Armstrong amendment that uh, was the issue. And Senator Armstrong raised the question of germaneness and was expecting again uh, an immediate vote. And if the Senate voted it germane, then it would be an order. When Senator Byrd intervened and said that the chair should play a role and that the chair should decide whether there was any House legislative language to which this amendment could be germane. Well, that wasn't in the rule. There was no precedent to that effect. But uh, there was an appeal of Byrd's point of order. Byrd had the majority. He won the appeal. And suddenly, we have a new interpretation. And Rule 16, ever since then, with the setting of the Armstrong precedent, provides a threshold. And when you send an amendment to the desk on an appropriation bill that is legislation, it's up to the parliamentarian to decide whether there's any House legislative language. Again, you've made the parliamentarian more powerful, and you've put him in a, a, a situation where he doesn't have a lot of precedence, because this was only set in the 1970s, and he's going to make senators unhappy. Uh, and it's just one of those kind of things that has happened. But uh, that uh, he liked to operate that way. And uh, it, uh, it, it means that the Senate, in terms of the way that it operates, is almost a bird Senate, in that, that there are a number of precedents that were set by Senator Byrd when he was majority leader from 77 to 81 uh, that were new and changed the way the Senate operated. What... What will a post-Bird Senate look like? Well, uh, to me, the Senate right now, because I don't see uh, either leader, Senator Reid or Senator McConnell, caring to play the role that Senator Bird played, uh, is, is nothing like that Senate in that you don't see parliamentary fights on the floor of the Senate. You don't see dazzling displays of knowledge of Senate rules. Uh, basically, you see uh, a test of wills. Uh, and in the words of, a, I believe, a member of the House, the Senate operating by exactly two rules, unanimous consent and exhaustion. And that's basically, I think, 
how the Senate is working now. Now, my reaction is, at some point in the future, maybe there will be a senator who de decides to play the role of a Senator Byrd and becomes a master of the rules and then shows the Senate how they can be used. But I don't think that's going to be soon. Along those lines, uh, do you think Dole um, will have a, a lasting place in history? Um, I, I do for this reason. Um, to me, um, Dole is a, a role model of the old school, of uh, the, the, the kind of senator who could reach across party lines and achieve an enormous amount of legislative output. Uh, to me, he was a master legislator. That hasn't changed. Uh, I know there are senators who remember Dole and remember how that worked. And in a sense, try to model themselves on that. Because it really is the way the Senate works. Uh, and I think probably the closest senator in that mold right now is Senator John McCain, who has reached out to Senator Feingold on campaign finance, who has reached out to Senator Kennedy on immigration. Uh, and, and that basically is how the Senate works. So in, in a sense, I think it's a tribute to the kind of legislator that Dole was that that uh, continues. How, to what degree do you feel that the Senate is a reflection of the country as a whole? It really isn't. Um, I, I get in my classes uh, complaints from students about the fact that this or that in the Senate isn't very democratic. Well, the Senate isn't very democratic. It wasn't designed to be democratic. The House was designed to be democratic. The House was designed to reflect the popular will of the moment. And that was seen as important. The Senate was designed to look at that popular will of the moment and then ask themselves, is that going to be what the people want two years from now, four years from now, six years from now? And, of course, they have six-year terms. And so they are given the luxury of the long view. What I think senators are, and I would give you this example, which I still remember so well. Uh, a senator from New Hampshire by the name of McIntyre, Thomas McIntyre, waited during the debate on the Panama canal treaties in the 1970s until almost the last uh, day or so before the treaties were going to be voted on. And at that point, I think we were deba debating them for eight weeks to make his speech. And it was an important speech because it was going to be a close vote and nobody really knew how he was going to vote. And he got up and he made his speech and he said he was going to support ratification of those treaties. And then he came up to the desk. Uh, Senator McIntyre was up for re-election the next year. And he told us at the desk 
that he had just signed his own political death warrant, that these treaties were extremely unpopular in New Hampshire, and that he would be defeated based on this vote alone. But it didn't seem to bother him, because he really felt that in the long run, the country was going to be better off if those treaties were ratified. And that's why he was there. He wasn't there to get reelected the next year. He was there to feel that he had done while he was there what he thought would be in the long range best interest of the country. To me, that's a luxury that senators are given. Not all of them have to pay the price that he did. But as I say, it didn't seem to bother him. And he was right. He was defeated for re-election, and I think that was probably the reason. But uh, it always has made me feel neat about working in a body where people like that come and do what they think is in the long-range best interest of the American people and are content to do that, irrespective of what it happens in their own political careers. I've heard the comment made a lot, though, that the the, the uh, partisanship of the Senate now is partially due to the fact that so many of the senators came through the House. And so your remarks make me think maybe they're bringing this, this more short-term perspective into the Senate. Would that be true? Well, let me give you another story. I won't give the name now because it's a senator who's still in the Senate. But he's a very conservative Republican senator. And uh, one of the things that happens uh, when people are presiding and uh, there's long periods of quorum calls is there's nothing else to do but talk to whoever's at the desk and the parliamentarian's handy. So he was chatting with me. And he had come from the House. And he was saying that while in the House, he had never spoken to any Democratic member. He didn't need to. They were irrelevant to his life. They couldn't do anything for him. Basically, he spoke to other Republicans. And he was telling me the story with such glee, because as I say, this was a very conservative Republican. He had teamed up with one of the most liberal Democrats on an issue. And why had he done that? Because that's how the Senate works. If he was going to be successful on this issue, he needed the cover of a liberal Democrat to co-sponsor it with him. And he had found that. And he was like a little kid who had discovered there's another world out there and it's kind of fun. You know, it's not that they were going to become ideological allies in the future on probably much else. But on this issue, yes. And that's how the Senate works. And uh, so I, I think, one, the fact that members do leave the House and run for the Senate and do not go the other way is an indication that there are members in the House who maybe don't like the partisanship of the House of Representatives, which is an incredibly partisan place. Uh, and prefer uh, the, the more consensus-oriented Senate uh, because they do move in that direction. 
So I don't really see a transference that way. We're almost to the end of the, this tape. There's one word I haven't, we haven't used here today, and I thought maybe you'd like to end briefly by discussing holds. Holds? Holds. Well, holds have this terrible reputation as if they are just really evil things. Uh, holds are letters. Letters sent by a senator to the leader of his party stating either in very mild terms, uh, please notify me uh, before this bill or this resolution is called up, or in very strong terms, uh, I will fight this bill with every breath in my body. Uh, it's really advantageous for the leaders to know about that. Uh, getting legislation through the Senate is difficult. It was designed to be difficult. And if the leaders are surprised when they try to call up a bill and find out that one of their uh, caucus uh, is really angry about that, uh, that doesn't make anybody happy. Um, yes, you could eliminate holes in the U.S. Senate. You could do it by turning the Senate into a small House of Representatives in which a majority can work its will whenever it wishes. I really don't think there are many senators who want to turn the Senate into a miniature House of Representatives. Uh, one of the reasons they like being in the Senate is that senators, every one of them, is powerful. Uh, I've heard the Senate floor described as a place where there's two inches of gasoline over the entire floor, and every senator has a book of matches. And they all know that it can individually blow up the place. The reason they normally don't is because of this self-restraint. Uh, and holds are simply a reflection of the fact that Yes, you do have to be restrained in the Senate in getting things done. So I, I'm not an enemy of holds. <laughs> right. What about earmarks? Okay. Well, I know that they are also now in disrepute. My problem with their being in disrepute is that I assume that earmarks are the reason people come to Congress. Uh, they want to be able to go back if they're a member to their district or if they're a senator to their state and say, look what I did for this in my state and it wouldn't have happened if I hadn't have been there on the job. Uh, I can remember the person I sat next to uh, in Dole's office uh, handled appropriations for Dole and a question that was given every day what have we done for Kansas today? Uh, I'm not against earmarks. I mean, the power of the purse is the most powerful thing that Congress has. You eliminate earmarks, and suddenly it's the executive branch that decides where every dime is spent. Uh, I don't think that's a power that Congress should give away. Great. Um, 